This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Veterans Health Administration is always looking for ways to improve psychotherapy treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Two leading methods are known as cognitive processing and prolonged exposure. VA's top expert on the problem recently co-authored the report on extensive study that compared these two therapies. Joining me with more is that expert. She's the executive director of VA's National Center for PTSD, Dr. Paula Schnurr. Dr. Schnurr, good to have you on. Good morning. Well, first of all, tell us the context here. Where does the PTSD office that you had live within VA and you know how does it interconnect with the other healthcare delivering mechanisms? The National Center for PTSD is a multi-site consortium that does research and education and consultation on PTSD. We're part of VA's Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention in the Veterans Health Administration, and we're a virtual organization, and so we're at multiple sites across the country. All right. And with respect to PTSD, tell us what these two major psychotherapeutic types of treatments are in the first place. So if I could also begin this by saying PTSD is a treatable disorder. And so the context for this study is that we have a range of effective treatments, uh, prolonged exposure known as PE, cognitive processing therapy known as CPT, are among the most widely studied and most effective VA began implementing a national training program in these treatments back in 2006 to enhance veterans' access. And so we require that veterans at all VA medical centers have access to these treatments. So the context is these treatments are effective. VA was using them, but there had only been one head-to-head comparison. It was done a long time ago, and it was done in female civilians. All right. So you looked at it for a wider population and for its more general efficacy of these two types of treatments? Yes. And we did it in veterans who have been engaged in other research on these treatments, but not in the head to head. Got it. And just briefly describe how they work, the two different treatments. So they're both known as trauma-focused treatments. And trauma-focused treatments help a person get through PTSD and related symptoms by helping them change their thoughts and feelings about a traumatic experience. Usually people have feelings such as fear and anger, sadness, guilt. They have thoughts that the world is dangerous or that they're incompetent because they allowed something so bad to happen to them. And both of the treatments are trying to change these thoughts and feelings, but in different ways. Prolonged exposure uses the technique of repeatedly telling one's story in vivid detail till the feelings decrease. If you do something repeatedly, you can decrease negative feelings associated with a traumatic experience. Cognitive processing therapy instead focuses on the thoughts that go along with the traumatic experience. And so for homework, for example, in cognitive processing, you might do some worksheets to help you examine, say, the pros and cons of believing the world is a dangerous place. In prolonged exposure, you might listen to a tape of yourself narrating the experience or go someplace out in the world that reminds you of the experience. It sounds like maybe these things should be done simultaneously, though. Sometimes they are, actually. And in truth, in both therapies, we're working on thoughts and feelings. But in the cognitive processing therapy, the thoughts are the target. In prolonged exposure, the feelings are the target. But in essence, because thoughts and feelings uh, influence one another, we are working on both of them in both therapies. 
We're speaking with Dr. Paula Schnoor. She is executive director of VA's National Center for PTSD. And what did the study tell you? The study told us that both treatments are effective, which we had seen from other studies going in, that prolonged exposure was a bit more effective but not to a great degree. So it was a statistical difference, but it wasn't a meaningful difference. And so what this tells us, our interpretation of the findings, is that providers can use these with high confidence about their effectiveness for veterans, and veterans can engage in either treatment, knowing that these treatments have been shown to be comparable. Well, if a veteran presents her or himself to a psychotherapist, and that person believes they have PTSD, does the therapist flip a coin? Or is there some indicator we know of that this treatment would be better for this individual, that treatment for that individual? Well, that's a great question, because that's actually a question that we are going to be answering with this study. What works best for which kinds of patients? I imagine many of your listeners have heard about precision medicine. Usually it's related to cancer treatment, but it's also a very relevant question for mental health disorders. And I hope that within the coming year, we'll be able to report on whether certain types of people may benefit more from one treatment or the other. But right now, What happens when people go to therapy will vary, but usually there's some discussion of the pros and cons of different treatments and what would be involved in doing one treatment versus the other. Formally, this process is known as shared decision-making, and we recommend it in our paper because it's so important to help anyone with PTSD learn about their PTSD and the treatment options available to them. And is there any substantive difference between veterans who might be suffering from PTSD as a result of a wartime situation versus the general population that has a thousand causes that can result in PTSD? Well, veterans live in the civilian world before and after the military. So what's unique is that many veterans have deployed to a war zone and they have combat exposure, which is really quite rare for most people other than civilians who have been in conflict zones. But there's much more similarity between veterans and non-veterans than there are uh, pronounced differences. And in fact, in our study, all veterans had military-related PTSD, but some of them chose to focus on civilian traumatic experiences that they had before or after the military because those were the most troubling experiences for them. Yes, you answered my question, but someone could be a veteran having had battle experience, but then 10 years later, they could be in a terrible car crash or something. And so does PTSD sort of compound over time or can you get over one and then get it again? The answer to both questions is yes. (laughs) Things can get worse over time and the more traumatic experiences that you have. We've heard that uh, that which does not kill you shall make you stronger, but it's not always true. And sometimes if you've had a traumatic experience, whether or not you've gotten PTSD, whether or not you've gotten over it, having a new traumatic experience can make things worse and increase the likelihood of developing symptoms or worsening symptoms that someone already has. And have you treated people for PTSD? I know you're in the research end of things now, but what are some of the improvements that you've been able to see yourself? So I am not a clinician, and so I have not treated people with PTSD, but I've been in the field since the mid-1980s. I started doing PTSD research shortly after the diagnosis was formalized, and the biggest change 
that I've seen in the almost 40 years of research that I've done is that we now know PTSD is a treatable disorder. And as I said, we have effective treatments for PTSD. And back in the 80s, we didn't have anywhere near the knowledge about PTSD and how to treat it. So I always try to say that what's really changed besides broader awareness about what PTSD is and that it happens to both veterans and non-veterans is that we now have psychotherapies and medications that we can use to treat it. Yes, that was another side question. Sometimes medication and psychotherapy work in tandem also, don't they? They do, and they're often used in tandem. Right now, the best psychotherapies work better than the best medications for PTSD, but there's an active uh, amount of research going on to identify better medications for PTSD. And I'll bet it gets complicated if there is PTSD in the presence of traumatic brain injury, two separate situations, but sometimes they occur simultaneously also. They do. Uh, In fact, the kind of event that could cause a traumatic brain injury could also lead to PTSD. The good news is that at least for mild to moderate traumatic brain injury, those individuals seem as responsive to PTSD treatment if they have PTSD compared with people who have not had a traumatic brain injury. So theoretically, it could complicate the picture, but it seems to really have an effect more so if an individual has severe consequences of the brain injury. And finally, what are some of the metrics for being cured of PTSD? since you can't quantify it in the way you can, say, a a bullet wound or a cut? Well, in all mental disorders, we uh, use a combination of interviews and questionnaires to assess a person's status and their improvement. There's great interest in what we call biomarkers and having biological indicators, but we're very far from being able to assess PTSD or improvement in PTSD. So the gold standard is a clinician interview using structured, standardized questions. And that's what we use in this study. But questionnaires are also widely used and can be very helpful as well. And so the person conducting that questionnaire would not have been the same person that conducted the psychotherapy leading to the cure. That's correct. The best practice, at least, would be to have a person who's independent and unaware of the kind of treatment or whether somebody's had treatment in order to give the most objective assessment of the PTSD symptoms. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Paula Schnur is executive director of VA's National Center for PTSD. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. 
And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Anyone else have trouble sleeping last night and the night before that? Same. And I've tried everything, but it either doesn't help me sleep so I'm cranky and tired the next day, or I sleep and then I'm drowsy the next day. Luckily, Seize the Night and Day is here. Go to SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more about insomnia and how you can seize the night. And Carpe the DM. Make their mission your mission, because they will not rest until we all rest. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.